Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Roseanne Brown, author of the new book, Sarah Boateng's Guide to Vampire Hunting, which is the first in a new series. Brown's debut novel, A Song of Wraiths and Ruin, was published in 2020 by HarperCollins, and the novel was a New York Times bestseller. The sequel, A Psalm of Storms and Silence, was published in November 2021. Best-selling writer Rick Reardon wrote about her new novel. Rosie writes her characters with such lyrical power, wit, and empathy that you can't help falling in love with Serwa Boateng, her family, and her friends. Roseanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel yet, Serwa Boateng's Guide to Vampire Hunting, how would you describe the novel? So I like to describe this book as Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Mean Girls. So our main character, Serwa Boateng, she is a 12-year-old Ghanaian immigrant. Um, I was born in Ghana, so I have a lot of connections to the culture and the country. And she has been raised to hunt vampires her whole life. Like, her parents are hunters. Like, it's all she knows how to do. However, uh, when a hunt goes horribly wrong, her parents are like, this is unsafe. You can't do this anymore. So they leave her with some non-magic relatives in central Maryland while they go finish their mission. So Sir Juan now has to face her toughest battle yet, middle school. Because she knows how to, like, break a man's arm and, like, how to, like, hold a vampire in a headlock. But she doesn't know how to open a locker or how to navigate, like, the lunchtime politics um, of, like, who's the mean girls? Who can you talk to? The book is all about her kind of navigating the trials and tribulations of your average middle school while when coming from this warrior, like, fighter mindset. That's great. <laughs> I'm curious. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the novel? Oh, so definitely. So way back in ancient 2019, a whole different era, it feels like. Um, I had just come back from, I had been teaching in Japan, and I had just come back to America. And I was feeling very kind of like, oh, what do I do? What should I work on next? I'm feeling kind of lost here. And I get this email from my agent. She's like, hey, I was talking to this editor, and like, she's looking for pitches for new ideas. Like, I'll, do you want to pitch or something? I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, who's the editor? And she's like, oh, um, Steph Murray at Rick Reardon Presents. And I was like, Rick Reardon Presents? Because I am an OG Percy Jackson fan. I got my copy in 2005. Shout out to the Scholastic Book Fair. And I have loved his work, loved what Percy Jackson has done for mythology and for students for years. And so I had not written Milgrain at the time, but I was like, no, I would love the chance to work with him. And so I did a bunch of research and I was really, I got this idea based off the Ajit, which is a creature in Ghanaian folklore, which is a vampire that instead of turning into a bat, it turns into a firefly and it takes over people's minds. So when you're possessed, you become a vampire instead of it biting you and become one. So I got this idea for a story around the Ajit and then Sir Wath who fights them. And I pitched it to Rick Riordan's present and the rest is history. <laughs> That's great. And I'm curious, how has been, how has the experience been working with Rick Riordan presents? It has been amazing. Like the whole team is so, so dedicated to like, not just like, publishing these stories but like really understanding the cultures behind them and like the research that makes each one different because they've done from like there's an Hindu mythology Korean so many different cultures around the world and like each one has their different nuances and their histories and so they've been so so good about like learning the specifics of Ghana and why like 
certain things are done in a certain way in the book because of like for certain cultural reasons and like really making it like this is not just like oh let's just like put it out there and we'll just treat it like every other book on the shelf like no like there's cultural specific things to each one in the line and they're so respectful and good about honoring that that's great and i'm curious can we go back for a moment what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing your first stories and eventually getting your first novel published Ooh, so for this one, we have to go way back, actually. To, um, <laughs> so I was born in Ghana, like I mentioned, but when I was about three years old, um, my dad had a chance to study at Howard University here in the D.C. area where I'm from. And so we all packed up our bags and we came here with him to America. And when I got here, I could not speak English, like, at all. Um, and for the first couple of years here, it was actually a big issue as I was coming to school and I could not understand anything to the point where my teachers called my parents and then they're like, we might have to hold her back because she she can't follow directions. She can't keep up with the other kids. Like, we don't know what to do. And, of course, like, being held back in first grade, that's really embarrassing. No one wants that to happen to them. So it was a big struggle. My parents were really worried. And in the end, it was because of books and reading and writing that I finally was able to understand the language. And, like, that helped me not just love writing and want to be a writer, but, like, to connect to other people and, like, like connect my some of my first friends with other kids who are always at the library reading and like hassle do we had in common and to be able to talk to them about. And so from a young age, I knew I wanted to sort of write books that did that for young people the same way my favorite books did that for me. And what were some of those favorite books uh, during that time of your life? Do you remember? Oh, definitely. So a big one. Um, I love Gail Carson Levine. She's most famous for Ella Enchanted, but my favorite by her is David Knight. I'm a big fan of Diane Wynne-Jones, uh, Crankles of Crestomancy, and Amores. And Amores was a big, big one I loved. I think my first like story I wrote all the way through in English was like a big Animorphs fan fiction, basically. <laughs> it, was, it was like me and my friends all in the Animorphs world. So yeah, very much, um, very much copyright infringement. But yeah, I still, I still have it. That's um, great. <laughs> that one and a series of unfortunate events. Yes, that let me snake a thousand. The little I loved. Yeah. Well, well, you did mention. Uh, Growing up in Ghana and um, moving to, as you described it, the wild jungles of nowhere, Maryland. I'm curious. <laughs> I, I mean, what was that? What was that change like for your family? I mean, that's pretty. That's a pretty big change. I mean, as, as you just mentioned, I mean, you, you, you couldn't really sp um, speak or understand English. Yeah. So I always like to describe it like that because I always like to kind of play play around with people's expectations, like, oh, people have this idea, like, Africa, like, full of jungles. I'm like, nah, man, I was having a great time in Africa. When I got here, suddenly everything was wild and different. Um, but, yes, when I, we got here, it was very much just that that culture shock, you know? Because even though I was so young, it, like, I was still old enough to recognize that something had very big had shifted and things weren't the same anymore. And when you're, for anyone, going from a place where, like, you understand like the culture and the people and the way it works to a new place with different rules and just different logic and like just different unspoken rules there. Like that's a big shock for anyone. And so I think that's one thing I really want to like kind of show within the book, like showing Sarah, like she's older than I am, um, than I was when we came, but still that anytime you're kind of going from this bubble or this place where like, your culture and the way you were taught to see the world is your norm. And then you have to learn to adjust to a new norm, how jarring that can be. That's great. 
And and I I understand that you also scripted a new Black Panther graphic novel that was released earlier this year. How was the process for you going from narrative fiction to writing a comic book script? Oh, gosh, yes. So I love, love, love comics. Like comics were actually a big influence on Sarah as well. But with um, so the graphic novels into the heartlands. So with that one, um, my editors at Marvel, um, Lauren Bism and Caitlin O'Connell, they were actually really good because they've worked with so many people who start on prose and then they moved to comic writing. So they had like a whole guide ready and they had a lot of experience like a where prose writers, our biggest thing is we're very wordy because like we have to be, whereas comics, like the art actually does most of the heavy lifting. And so a lot of, it was learning to really think visually. Like, so for example, a scene where I like, I'd be writing out a long description and things to really get the reader to envision it. I actually had to learn to pull back on that. And in the art direction, I'd be like, okay, how do I set up this scene so we don't need as much dialogue so the art can tell the story? Like, when do we just, instead of having a character say like, oh, I'm sad, like we just have a close-up of their face and they're devastated. Like that gets the message across even better. So it was very much, it was, it was very difficult because I'm actually not a very visual thinker. So I had to, at certain points, I was like literally drawing, scribbling out little comic pages. And I am not an artist. And thank goodness for all the comic <laughs> readers I'm not because you don't want that. I would really like just sketch out little panels and just kind of doodle the little thumbnail to show them, uh, to just get an idea in my head so I could describe for the artists what like we needed them to do. And and I'm curious, do you plan to to do more comic book scripts? Oh, I would definitely love to. I definitely have um shifted since Heartlands, like I turned in and came out. I definitely, just because I had so many pros in the pipeline, I've been focused on that a little bit. But I would never say no to the opportunity again because I've really enjoyed it. That's great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 
And I'm curious about your writing process when you were working on Sarah Boateng's Guide to Vampire Hunting. Did you outline the novel extensively or did you just dive into the narrative? How does that work for you when you're working on a novel? Lots of people have heard that people are like, there's plotters who plot everything out and then there's pantsers who just kind of make it up as they go. But I actually consider myself a third one that um, I've heard other authors call it they call it headlighter or road tripper with the idea that like, <laughs> you know where you start, right? And you know where you're ending. Like you're, if, if you're going on a road trip, you know, you know where you're getting, but you don't necessarily know exactly where you're going to stop on the way there. But all you need, like if all you can see is what's in front of your headlights, that can get you all the way to the end of the trip, if that makes sense, right? So I mm-hmm. think that is the best way to think about how I approach story because I usually will know like, okay, like, and the character, she's starting the book, like, not confident. Then the book, she needs to be confident. So that's the end of the journey we're doing here, right? And so I'm usually, like, only I'm thinking a couple scenes ahead. But I'm like, how is this moving us towards a goal? Or she's going to be more confident. She's going to be moving towards this goal. Or is this going to be a setback that pushes her away? She has to push harder for the goal. Like, in that sort of way. So I'm definitely a road chipper um, type of writer. Like, I have my destination, and then I kind of work towards it. But there's always room for little happy surprises along the way. That's that's interesting. I'm curious, are you working on another novel now? Yeah, so I actually just turned in um, the sequel to Sirlaw. I turned that in a couple of weeks ago, which I'm so glad for because I love not being on deadline. Um, <laughs> and then, I so I started a YA, and so I've been working on kind of my next series for YA readers, and nothing's been announced yet, but like there's some fun things happening behind the scenes. <laughs> that's great. We'll, we'll wait to hear the announcement. Um, I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer to those who are working on their own stories or novels? I always tell people, like, don't be afraid to, like, make writing a priority in your life. Because I think the biggest thing I hear from a lot of aspiring writers is, oh, I just, I wish I just had more time or, like, I just wish I had, like, more space. And, like, the thing is, like, there never is going to be more time, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, I always like to give the analogy, like, if you want to, like, uh, for Olympic athletes to make the team, they have to play an Olympic. Le- they have to practice an Olympic level long before they ever get picked for the team. You know. Yeah. And so I'm always like, if you want to write to be published, which I think anyone truly can do, but it takes that practice and that time. And the practice for us, it's the writing stories and writing books that some people will never see. And so I always tell them, don't be afraid to treat it like a practice. Like my friends who are athletes, like when they had practice time, like they couldn't come with us to like go out to dinner or to go do things. Like it'll be like, no, 4 p.m. is when I have practice. I'm not available. Well, I used to treat writing the same way. Like back when I was like, before I had the agent on a book deal, like I blocked out a couple times a week. That was my writing hour. And during that hour, like even though I was technically free, if someone asked me to do something, I'd be like, no, I'm actually, I'm not free right now. I'm busy. And I treat it like it was like a, a practice I couldn't skip. And during that hour, all I was allowed to do was write. So I always tell people like, you're allowed to make a priority and kind of if you think in those terms, like uh, that mindset similar to kind of like how pro athletes or like pro musicians, like they they have to practice like outside performances. It becomes a lot easier than to make time to write because it feels less like something you just have to sprinkle on top of everything else you're doing. But it becomes an integral part of your life. That's great. Well, I'm curious, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Ooh, okay. So I recently went... Um, read Spitting Silver by Naomi Novik, which I loved that book. Like, I know it came out a couple <laughs> years ago, but I just discovered it and I really, really enjoyed it. And another one that I read recently is Hyde, Kirsten Light. That I love, love her work. She is so amazing. She's done a lot of work in Kid Lit, but this is her adult debut. So that was an amazing one. 
And a third one I really liked. So this one's not out yet. It's out next year. But it's Blood Death by um, Terry Benton Walker, which is like a sort of a generational, um, a story of like different generations of magic feuding families in like New Orleans um, and features sort of like black kids discovering their magic and their power. And I know it's cheating to say a book that's not out till next year, but it is so, so good. And I want everyone to pick this up when it gets out, when it comes out. That's great. We'll look for that. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Definitely. So my website is on roseanneabrown.com. That's Roseanne, R-O-S-E-A-N-N-E-A, Brown. And then on social media, my handle is at Rosie's Rambles. That's R-O-S-I-E-S, Rambles, with an S at the end. And that's Twitter, Instagram. On both of the two, I'm most active. And usually there's updates on my book and my work and whatever TV show I'm yelling at with my dog. (laughs) That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Roseanne Brown, author of the new book, Sarah Boateng's Guide to Vampire Hunting, which is the first in a new series. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Roseanne, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Thanks a lot for doing this. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Roseanne Brown's earlier novel, A Song of Wraiths and Ruin. Abra'a, Abra'a, come and gather. A story is about to begin. The griot's voice warbled through the scorching desert air, cutting through the donkey pens and jeweled caravans that populated the tent settlement outside the city-state of Zoran's western gate. An instinct, Malik angled his body toward the storyteller's call his grip tightening around the satchel strap slung across his chest. Thagria was a stout woman, nearly a head shorter than Malik, with a face stretched wide and a tooth-bearing grin. Bone-white tattoos composed of symbols Malik could not understand swirled on every inch of her dark brown skin. Abra'a, Abra'a, come and gather. A story is about to begin. The steady rhythm of a djembe drum now accompanied the griot's call. And within minutes, a sizable crowd had formed beneath the baobab tree where she stood. It was the perfect time for a story, too. That hour when dusk met night, and the little sunlight that remained left the sky bright, but the world below dark. The audience sat on overturned crates in between worn carts, checking the heavens every few minutes for Bahia's comet, even though its arrival and the start of the festival of Sostagia were still hours away. The griot called a third time, and Malik took another step toward her. Then another. When the Zirani had occupied his home in the Ashran Mountains, the Griots had been the first to go. But the few who remained had carved their marks into Malik's soul. To listen to a Griot was to enter a new world, one where heroes danced across the heavens with spirits in their wake, and gods turned mountains into being with a flick of their wrists. Malik's body seemed to move forward of its own accord, caught on the hypnotic lore of the woman's voice. He and his sisters had been traveling the Ojibai Desert for two months now, with no company aside from the creaking of the false wagon bottom they hid beneath, the howling cries of the wind shifting through the dunes, and the quiet whimpers of his fellow refugees. Surely there'd be no harm in listening to just one story and letting himself forget for just a moment that they had no home to return to. And no. Malik, look out! A strong hand grabbed Malik by the collar and he stumbled backward. Not even a second later, a leathery foot the size of a small cow slammed to the ground right where he had been standing. A shadow passed over Malik's face as the Chippequee lumbered by, throwing sand and pebbles into the air with each thundering step. Malik had heard stories of Chippequees as a child, 
but none of the tales had captured the creature's gargantuan size. Bred to hunt elephants on the savanna, the top of its plated head could have easily cleared the roof of his family's old farmhouse, and the sharp horn protruding from the creature's nose was nearly as large as he was. Are you trying to get yourself killed? Snapped Layla as the Chippequee's shadow passed. His older sister glared at him over the bridge of her crooked nose. Watch where you're going. Reality returned to Malik like drops of water from a rusty faucet, and slowly, the call to story was drowned out by the cries of caravan drivers to their beasts, melodies from musicians regaling audiences with tales of Solstagia's past and other sounds of the settlement. Several people had stopped to stare at the idiot boy who had almost gotten himself trampled to death, and the weight of their gazes sent heat rushing to Malik's face. He twisted the worn leather of his satchel strap until it bit into the flesh of his palm. Shadows flickered in his peripheral vision, and Malik squeezed his eyes shut until his head hurt. I'm sorry, he muttered quietly. A small head surrounded by a cloud of bouncy dark curls popped out from behind Layla. Did you see that? exclaimed Nadia. His younger sister's mouth hung open in wonder. It was like, like a million feet tall. Is it here for Solstagia? Can I touch it? It's most likely here for Solstagia because everyone's here for Solstagia. And don't touch anything, said Layla. She turned back to Malik. And you of all people should know better than to just wander off like that. Malik's grip on his satchel strap tightened. There was no use trying to explain to his older sister the power a call the story had over him. While he was prone to dreaming and wandering, Layla preferred logic and plans. They saw the world differently, in more ways than one. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 